0: But we went around to places, states, and rural counties that a lot of people don't know, can't even find on a map, because that's how much we believe in, in building power. And one of our models is Black Voters Matter everywhere. So that's what we did.
1: Now, with COVID, uh, as we all saw, a lot of people were able to vote by mail and do things that were unheard of before mm-hmm. the pandemic. So what do you think is going to happen moving forward? Because we've been seeing all these voter suppression mm-hmm. laws that have been getting passed in certain states. So what can we do to make sure that we're still able to access uh Being able to vote easier. You know what? We got to fight. At the end of the day, Mm -hmm. we have to really recognize what this is about. Part of what
2: the work that we're doing, we're telling people we're honest about voting. Listen, our name is Black Voters Matter, but we're the first to tell you we don't believe that voting is going to be is going to lead to black liberation by Mm -hmm. itself. That's Mm -hmm. not what we believe. But what we do believe that it is a tool, and that when people are in struggle and they're seeking to get power, you have to use everything available. We ain't leaving nothing on the table. Mm. And so, at the end of the day, part of us, even the work that we're doing around, you know, even around voting. The suppression is not just around that. It's really around getting people to say, go get your power. At the end of the day, we have to assert and stand in our agency. And so part of what we're doing is this is an organizing opportunity for us to literally get black people to think about. We have to think about our power. We have to think about our agency. We have to think about governance. If we're going to build something different, we've got to think about governance. Because what I can tell you is when people are not thinking about that, you'll create the same thing That's that right. was already created. Right. So we have, to, we have to use this as an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And so the work that we're doing around voter suppression is twofold. One, it is, yes, we've got to stop the bleeding now. We're actually out on these streets. That's why we are fighting for this federal legislation. Mm-hmm. So that what we're seeing is voter suppression that is happening when people are hearing about the the, uh, um, the John Lewis, For the People Act and the John Lewis Voter Advancement Act, Mm -hmm. we need that to actually stop the pain that's happening now. But beyond that, we also need, you know, I always ask people this question, what would this nation look like without racism? Mm
3: -hmm. Just
2: sit in that for a
3: minute, Mm -hmm.
2: right? And the reason why it's important to ask this question, because if we ain't asking that question, what are we doing? Because we'll never create that if we mm. can't even envision it. Mm. There's nothing that has been brought into the physical world that folks didn't first envision. Mm. And so I'm saying that because part of the work that we're doing is not just responding to what it is now. It is helping people to radically reimagine every single system in this country. If that means shifting the whole way we see the criminal justice system, because we know what it's rooted in. Mm-hmm. That means shifting education. If that means shifting the voting process. But part of being able to do that is people have to really understand what that process is, why it does not meet the needs we have, and what it is that we want to replace it with.
0: And, and, and if I could add on, you know, I agree with everything Latasha said, you know, but in, in regards to that, that fight against the voter suppression piece, we've got to be willing to use the power that we have, right, and to use different tactics. Like, we've got to believe what Malcolm Assembly says by any means necessary. So, so one of the things we did in Georgia was we started this whole corporate accountability campaign. Where we said, look, corporations. We we did, we had research that said, oh, Delta is giving X amount to the very people that are pushing these bills, right? Um, 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 Coca Cola is okay. giving. Uh, thousands of dollars to the very people that are pushing these bills. So we said we gotta call them out. Right. And we gotta hold them accountable. Right. We gotta tell you, you can't have it. you can't be uh, asking us to be your employees and be your, your consumers and living off of us and, and dependent on us while you're funding our suppression. Mm-hmm. Right. And so we did a whole corporate accountability campaign to fight back against that Georgia Bill, to fight back against the Florida bill, to fight back against the Texas bill. In Texas it works. Right. All of it works because at the end of the day, that's what movement is. Right. Mm -hmm. We started in Georgia, couldn't stop the bill in Georgia, but it created momentum that then let us stop the bill in in, in Texas. What do you say to
1: people who say that, you know, voting doesn't matter or people who say I don't like any of the candidates, so I'm not Mm. voting?
0: We say you're
2: right. <laughs> I mean, the truth of the matter is, you have to understand this ain't about this ain't a popularity contest. This, we, ain't ta- we ain't talking about no talent
3: show. That's right. We're talking right.
2: about at the end of the day, somebody, if anybody, has done any social justice work. I can tell you the difference when I go into a courtroom that if a DA matters absolutely. If one DA in, is in office opposed to another DA, that can make a difference between whether our people get time in jail or twenty years of life. Mm-hmm. Having a judge in jail. I a judge in place that is least more accountable to community makes a difference for us. So we have to really see this as a harm reduction strategy. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, I don't know about anybody else, but anybody's making a decision about me and my family, I need to be a part of that process. Mm-hmm. So this isn't about who you like or who you don't like. It's really around how am I going to reduce the harm happening to my community at the very least, and how I'm going to hold folks accountable. If you come at us, we coming we coming for you, right? right? There has to be consequences when people are doing things that are harmful in our communities. So when those DAs or those judges use the opportunity to exploit us, we got to go and make sure we move them out to give a consequence. Mm-hmm. And the same thing is also we have to put people in position. Corey Bush being in position, mm-hmm. this right. sister being in position, being voted by young folks, right? young black voters. As a result, the entire process around housing eviction, her actions matter. So Mm -hmm. for us to not acknowledge, right, right, you don't have an analysis of power Mm -hmm. if you say it doesn't matter. You know, it's the same thing around how many of us get a, you don't like your boss, you ain't going to go get your check. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right? Right. At the end of the Mm -hmm. day, it's really around how you're going to use the tools to actually advance your community. And voting is one of those. Every single aspect of our lives is impacted by voting. Find me something that isn't. Right? You can't even die and your people get the insurance money without having a death certificate. Somebody creates that policy. So as long as we're in this formation, right, where this public policy impacts every aspect of our lives, if you are a person like me that believes in self-determination, I've got to be a part of the process. Right? Because I'm not going to let you make a decision about me and mine, and I'm not a part of that process.
4: This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power. One broadcast at a time. Former president and his supporters have decided the only way for them to win is to suppress your vote and subvert our election. It's undemocratic. And frankly, it's un-American. Now to our common ground with Janice Graham.
3: Welcome do I'm to Cambridge Forum. with With the with
7: With I'm You know, I'm Pat Zerke, the director of the forum, and I'm delighted to welcome you tonight as we host political scientist Aaron O'Brien in conversation with Philip Martin, the senior investigative reporter for WDBH News. They'll be discussing the issue of voter suppression, the question, who gets to vote and who controls access to the ballot? Age and political back and forth, you know, Fox, MS, NBC, we don't do that. Rather, we systematically study what's going on. Um, so I want to present the research that's gotten so much attention for the motives, what the evidence suggests, why restrictive voter access legislation is both proposed and passed. Um, and third, I want to draw connections to larger policy arenas. Voter access matters dramatically, and the recent moves are incredibly important, but it's a mistake to consider them in isolation. We all know what's going on in Baltimore right now. Um, that I'd like to draw the connections between other policy arenas with um, racial overlays and racial targets and draw a broader picture or location of uh, the current restrictive voter access legislation and lastly, I'm not an optimist by nature but I hate to leave an audience um, depressed and (laughs) I'd like to um, point uh, to some of the states that are taking opposite action. Um, and uh, many of you, if you're here tonight, you're politically engaged. You're the kind of people who, if you're not the lawmaker, you know the lawmakers. You contact those folks. But the research also suggests that not all moves towards broader um, uh, access are equally efficacious. So I'd like to point us to where the research suggests which ones we should really focus our energies on. So, get ready. Uh, in terms of uh, part one, voting rights are not a steady march forward. Indeed, um, Alex Kazar, who's just uh, right down the road here at Harvard, who's written The Right to Vote, The Contested History of Democracy in the United States, he notes that history, history rarely moves in simple straight lines and the history of suffrage is no exception. Indeed, the trajectory of voting rights and electoral access in the United States is rightly seen as a progressive extension of the franchise. That said, once we dig a little bit deeper, um, often obscured in that narrative is the reality that electoral reforms over time have worked to both expand and retract the franchise for particular categories of um, citizens. We all know the well-known examples, and did we celebrate them, and we should celebrate them. Um, the 15th Amendment in 1860 gives African American men the right to vote. In 1920, via the 19th Amendment, women are granted, or won, uh, the right to vote. And we talk, as uh, Martin has and others, about the civil rights gains of the mid and late 1960s as well as into the early 70s. Those are periods of real pride amongst most Americans who care about citizen engagement, who care about um, individuals' ability to participate. That said, When we dig into the historical historical narrative, there are numerous examples of targeted exclusion of the franchise. And I'm going to go through a couple of them because this is a history that's regularly not known, and uh, this is documented in some of Alex's work. Um, Women. Um, In New Jersey, for example, all the constitutions of 1776 and 1790 extended the franchise to all inhabitant property owners. By the mid-1800s, women were excluded from that. Legislation was written to say, not for women. When it comes to race and citizenship, I'll give another example. In Connecticut, in 1715, there was no race or citizenship requirement. By 1818, you had to be white and a US citizen. Similar in Delaware, 1734, no requirements for race or citizenship. By 1792, you had to be white and a citizen, and we see similar shifts in Kentucky, Maryland, Michigan, New York, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, all underwent similar shifts of pulling back the right to vote prior to 1850. Of course, in 1860, the 15th Amendment passes. Pauper exclusions. Um, individuals, welfare claimants, low income. Um, Massachusetts, uh, and this is one of my favorite things, Massachusetts often says, we're so progressive, we're so different. Massachusetts in 1821 um, excluded paupers from the right to vote, and in 1881 said, okay, um, those claiming welfare cannot vote unless you fought in the war, right? So these pauper extensions were in Massachusetts and many other states, felons of uh, something that will come up later in this discussion. Uh, there is no Yankee exceptionalism here either. Connecticut in 1818 says felons can't vote, Rhode Island makes this um, same move in 1842, and Vermont does it in 1793. Indeed, between 1790 and 1857, 24 states added this provision that felons cannot vote the institutionalized or in the language of the day, the mentally unsound, um, Missouri, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Louisiana. These are all instances, and there's a lot more. This is not a complete history, um, but these are all instances that show us in American history the right to vote has regularly been given and taken away. Um, so what I'd like to take, uh, for as we think about this, at least two takeaways for us. As I said, one. The current era of disenfranchisement is not new. Um, The move backward on voter access to the franchise has um, strong historical resonance in the United States. It's not celebrated to the same degree, nor should it be, but it is very much a part of our history. And secondly, what you saw with that list, nowhere where they were like, hey, very affluent white guys, um, we're going to take your right to vote. (laughs) That never happened. There's no history of that. Rather, it is um, the historical narrative or the history shows us that it is group-based and it is um, negatively constructed into groups with a relatively little power are the groups that have the franchise taken away from them. And again, this theme remains quite resident to me. Also in this history, and this will come up, these are pull, pullbacks, I should say, have always been um, put forward for partisan advantage. Okay, Um, The way we run our elections in the United States is a much larger topic. It's also a fairly depressing topic. Um, But in our federal system, states run the elections. This makes it easier to pull back in some areas on the right to the franchise. But what we've seen is the modern day um, forebearers of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party have both engaged in this part, in these practices. Parties, political parties, John Aldrich out of Duke and others, um, show us this repeatedly, are self-interested. They want to survive. And if we look at that, we see that they have regular, both parties have regularly fought to pull back on the right to vote. And that is another theme um, that uh, comes up here today. So as we think about this, it's not new. I don't know if that's good news or bad news. Okay? But it is important to see that what, what's going on today with one particular party um, it is not something that we haven't seen before in U.S. American politics, and certainly not in terms of the targeting of low-income individuals, mentally unsound, unsa- felons, women, African Americans, etc. Also, I didn't get into it, there's a broad history in terms of Native Americans and um, having the right to vote um, taken away so that brings us to today Um, today's modern update if you will voter id laws and corresponding legislation um, obviously it has gained national resonance after the election of barack obama in 2008 there was early litigation or not litigation there was early legislation on this that actually came out of a bipartisan commission with james baker and jimmy carter in 2005 and they, um, inst- or they, did, they recommended that uh, voter IDs um, uh, at the polls were, could be requested, right? That not that everyone has to show it, but you could ask, you could request. They recommended this and this bipartisan commission, and it was uh, nobody really did much with it. Uh, Indiana, however, in 2005, and let's think about that. That is just nine years ago. Right. The sweep of legislation has happened very, very quickly. And in Indiana and then Georgia soon followed suit, were the first two states to pass voter ID legislation, though unlike the, the Baker-Carter Commission, they said they are required. Okay? The courts. The courts get involved in this because, of course, um, tellingly, I should say, the Democratic uh, Party uh, in the state of Indiana, as well as interest groups looking out for elderly rights and minority rights. Um, uh, sued, and the case is Crawford versus Marion County Election Board, Uh, the Supreme Court in a 2007 decision upheld um, the legality of requiring a voter ID in order to cast your ballot, okay? Since the 2008 election, this is when this litigation has really just expanded dramatically, and I want to be clear here. I'm talking about five types of restrictive voter access legislation. There's others, but there's five that have been the most popular. Voter ID uh, legislation gets talked about all the time, right, and it's incredibly important and it's there. There's also moves, um, and states have passed this, to curtail early voting. You'll hear about this as souls to the polls and things like that, to push back to say no early voting or limiting the amount of time that early voting occurs. States have done new restrictions to felons saying they can't vote. Um, There's been shortening of registration periods. You know, here in Massachusetts, you register, you have to be registered, and then there's the 30-day wait before you vote, right? States have made that period short, I'm sorry, extended that period, gone after registration, Um, and they've also gone after voter registration drives, which when we think about that, I mean, what's more Americana than a voter registration drive? Like, I'm not telling you how to vote. I'm saying, I mean, I've done this in classes. I used to live in Ohio, and you got more, a lot more attention come presidential election season. But you, you try to register students to vote because you want to inculcate um, participation in democracy. But um, some states, Texas being one of them, have said, if you're registering voters, giving out that um, paperwork, you have to live in the same county as the people you're registering, and if you don't turn over those um, forms within three days of so three to five days, that um, it can be a misdemeanor or a low-class felony right so making it harder for groups like the League of Women Voters who hates the League of Women Voters come on right Uh, voter registration drives so those are um, the kind of legislation that I'm talking about here voter ID curtailing early voting new restrictions on felons registration restrictions and increased regulation of voter registration drives between 2006 and 2011 on that legislation, 90% of states proposed some form of that legislation, and almost 50% of states passed something in that pool. Okay, that's bad news, uh, or potentially bad news, given what I'm about to tell you. But I want—it's um, important to point out—much of this legislation hasn't. The implementation has been slow across some states. So we haven't seen a presidential election nor have we seen a midterm election with this legislation fully implemented. Okay? Indeed, according to the Brennan Center for Justice, since the 2010 election, new voting restrictions ha- are going to be in place in 22 states, In 15 states, 2016 will be the first major federal election with these, two, with these new restrictions in place. All of this was enabled, or much of it was enabled, by the Supreme Court's decision in Shelby v. Holder. Um, and for those of you who don't know, that's the 2013 um, 5-4 court decision that uh, essentially eviscerated preclearance in the uh, Voting Rights Act. And the idea with preclearance is in these um, states and localities that had a history of prior discrimination uh, at the polls if they wanted to make a change to their legislative law, they had to go to the DOJ. they had to go to the Department of Justice. And what the court said, they didn't say that preclearance, many people thought they would just get rid of preclearance at all, but what they said was, the formula that's being used is outdated. So Congress can revisit that formula if they want to. Um, what do we know about Congress right now? They are not going to do that. right? Um, our, our current Congress, So the, the court left the, um, the door open at Congress could do this. Um, and there's been, some uh, members of Congress have, have tried, but there's been absolutely no action. So all the litigation and the legislation I'm talking about, you've heard a lot about, but we have yet to have a federal election where it's truly been in place. What does all this mean? All this legislation, and and I want to point out the fact that 50%, almost 50% of states passed this kind of legislation between 2006 and 2011 and 90% of states proposed it is so wildly out of character for policy diffusion. Nothing happens that quickly. Uh, When we look at state politics and policy, very rarely do we see such an uptick um, so quickly across the states. What does it mean? If you turn on, uh, I don't suggest doing this, but if you turn on MSNBC or Fox, you will find clear answers. Um, Very rarely do they deal in data, (laughs) Uh, but you will find clear answers. On the left, all this legislation is amounts to for their understanding of it is the thinly veiled attempt by republicans to depress turnout among constituencies favorable to the democratic party namely minorities new immigrants the disabled young etc okay indeed I, I i don't i'll read this quote because it's a good one um and this is from ari berman who's a journalist it says, Republican officials have launched an unprecedented, centrally coordinated campaign to suppress the elements of the Democratic vote that elected Barack Obama in 2008. Just as Dixiecrats once used poll taxes and literacy tests, to bar black southerners from voting, a new crop of GOP governors and state legislators has passed a series of seemingly disconnected measures that could prevent millions of students, minorities, immigrants, ex-convicts, and the elderly from casting their ballot. That's why the left thinks this legislation is going on. The right is equally passionate if disagrees vehemently. On the right, um restrictive voter access legislation that's what we call this um suite of legislation um is there is necessary to curtail rampant electoral fraud in an era of close and polarizing elections so as to preserve electoral legitimacy and i think it's important to point out if the left is right and if the right is correct that's a problem as a political scientist If what the left is saying, I I find that incredibly problematic from a participatory democracy standpoint. If the right is correct, it's equally problematic, right? But both of these sides are making these claims. Uh, I'll I'll give a quote. Um, Ken Blackwell, who's the former attorney general in the state of Ohio um, and is on the political right, he's a Republican, says, what more than 30 states have tried to do is put in place a common sense measure of voter ID So that people are assured that voters are who they purport to be and voter ids are commonplace in our culture you need an id for a driver's license for boarding an airplane receiving a passport purchasing alcohol or checking out a library book so to use it to safeguard the integrity of the voting process at the voting station is pretty uneventful this is a reasonable safeguard to protect against voter fraud and ballot box stuffing when we have sufficient and enough evidence that there have been people who would do just that if given the opportunity. Okay? If we take him at his word, I think most of us would agree if rampant voter fraud is a problem and that's what's motivating this legislation, doesn't seem particularly problematic. Um, some on the right, though not all, add a socioeconomic status overlay to this argument, saying that um, demo- the Democratic constituencies are more apt to commit fraud um, because uh, they're lower income and thus you know, um, more easily induced. Um, there's also a racial overlay. Um, this is from Red State. The implicit argument the NAACP and every single liberal is presenting here is that it is unreasonable to expect an African American, simply by virtue of the color of his his or her skin, to be able to procure, hold, and present a photo ID. Okay, So you have this explosion of legislation. And you have the left saying this is wildly problematic because it's targeting low-income people, minorities, immigrants. And you have the right saying this is necessary to preserve the legitimacy of the ballot, okay? For us, for my co-author Keith Bentel and I, he's our assistant professor of sociology at UMass Boston and works just one floor below me, so it's been a great partnership. Um, we are social scientists and said, listen, That is a he said, she said debate. What's missing from that debate is an empirical adjudication of those arguments. That's what we as social scientists do. We don't do he said, she said. We look and we test the evidence. So in the the research that, um, that we did and has gotten quite a bit of attention is we simply asked what political, electoral, and contextual factors actually drive why states alternatively propose and pass restrictive voter access legislation. And we did, there's nothing um, more um, captivating than hearing about advanced regression techniques. <laughs> That's a joke. Um, uh, but what we did do, what's important for you to understand is we first said we did two sets of models. One, on the proposal side, because proposals incredibly important. Even if something doesn't pass, it softens. It, it, it gets people used to the idea. So you can propose something two or three times, and the first time it seemed outlandish, but then the third or fourth time it passes. Okay. So we did proposal and passing. And what we did, and these are mathematical models, but the beauty of these mathematical models is that we can test all the explanations that are out there, and we can test them against each other. And it's basically whatever rises to the top is what's driving states to propose and adopt this legislation. It's um, it, for those of you. It's these tests of statistical significance. Okay, but what we did is we took every argument at face value. We didn't impugn motive. We didn't impugn symbolic politics. We said, what does the left think is going think is going on, and let's test it. What does the right think is going on, and let's test it. Okay, so just so you understand, it's just important that you understand the logic of what we're doing. Okay? And we included a ton of variables. But for our purposes, we tested five major sets of explanations, and we tested them against each other. That's what you do in these regression techniques. The first is just partisan preferences and electoral competition. We know that, on average, the Republican Party has more of a taste For making, um, for securing the ballot box, and um, the Democratic Party has more of a taste for access to the ballot box. Right, that is just a truism of these two modern parties. Democrats are more concerned about access, and Republicans are more concerned about making sure who votes is who they say they are. Okay, so we simply test. We look at Republican legislative strength in the states and that of course varies widely and we would predict without impugning motive we say where republicans are more strong in the state legislature where they have the governorship etc we should see this legislation proposed and passed okay that's explanations from political science then we took the left seriously and we tested their explanations about voter behavior and more importantly voter suppression What we looked there, we tested um, change in minority vote as well as change in class bias and turnout. Said differently, from 2004 to 2008, minorities turned out more at the polls. So what we did is we looked at those differences in all the states and we predicted that where African Americans started to turn out more between 2004 and 2008, obviously 2008 being Barack Obama, we would expect to see this legislation. Similarly with class bias, it has never been the case that low income and high income people vote at the same rate in the United States, indeed socioeconomic status is the single best predictor of whether or not one votes. But in those states where the gap started to close between 2004 and 2008, if the Democrats are right, we should see this um, legislation. We also tested just basic percentage of African Americans in the state and the percentage of non-citizens. to to operationalize what the left was arguing. Then what we did, we did the exact same thing for the right. And the most important variable here is Lorraine Minute, who's at NYU, she's a political scientist at NYU. She has gone through, or I don't know, I'm guessing her and her research assistants, but has gone through and literally documented every reported case of fraud. And the 2000, ooh, I don't that, I think it was 2004. But what she does is she goes and looks at everything, and it didn't have to be borne out or, or proven true, but she finds every single claim of electoral fraud. So we simply tested that. We said in those states where there are more reports of electoral fraud, if the right is correct, those are the states that should be proposing and passing this. Okay, so for our purpose, and there's some other variables and things like that, but what I want um, uh, listeners to uh, understand is that in these models, we looked at proposal, and we looked at passing, and we test all these explanations um, to see which rise to the top, to see what's driving this. So, findings. What drives proposal of legislation? Five things. States with a larger percentage of African Americans were more likely to propose this legislation second higher minority turnout and increases in minority turnout more likely to propose this legislation third where lower income voter turn uh, turnout increased between 2004 and 2008 where there was a higher fourth a higher percentage of non citizens and unsurprisingly it was less likely to pass when voter IDs were already in place okay That's why we step back and conclude from the evidence that proposal is driven by racial, anti-immigrant, and classist considerations. I'll say that again. That proposal is driven by racial, anti-immigrant, and classist considerations. We then turned to passing this legislation, same kind of test. And here, um, five factors come forward. Restrictive voter access legislation is more likely to get passed when Republicans controlled the governorship and both chambers, right, because they could pass it. Second, when the forecasters viewed the state as a potential swing state in 2012 and Republicans were in control, more likely to pass restrictive voter access legislation. Third, where there is a larger percentage of African American residents, but, and this is sort of, this is very, this is a telling finding, larger proportion of African-American residents but a surge in minority turnout decreased the likelihood of passage. So um, we call this the backlash of the mobilized, right? When African-Americans really um, had a big surge, um, state legislatures feared that that mobilized group could potentially vote them out. Fourth, it's more likely to pass where whites where white voter turnout is considerably higher than black voter turnout, and interestingly, though it was not, um, uh, it, it was did not have a major impact. Um, we also find that there was a lar- where there was a large number of allegations of voter fraud in the 2004 election. This was more likely to pass. Now, of all those variables that had the least weight, but as a social scientist, we report the data. Okay, so when we step back from this, we say, listen. The driving forces for this legislation are not up for debate. We ran the models. You know, this is peer reviewed. Nobody said <laughs> that the, the, the variable's missing, right? Uh, rather, we ran the models and it is a story of race, class, and partisan demobilization. That is what is going on. That is what is the driving forces for proposal and passage. I can't speak to motive, but I can tell you what Forces are driving states to propose this legislation and pass it. I think it's incredibly important, as, especially in a forum like this one, where we deal with evidence and we want to have true discussion, um, to not see this ground, right? Everyone, this is a
4: You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time.
7: Famous quote, but everyone is entitled to their own opinions but they're not entitled to their own facts. And the research here undoubtedly suggests that, um, the, that voter ID and its cousin legislation combating it is justified based on issues of racial and class equity at the ballot box, okay? So that is the major, those are the major findings from this line of research. And many folks would stop there. Uh, and I think that's a mistake. Okay? Um, I'd like to connect some other policy dots here before I turn to a little bit of good news before we uh, really open it up to the discussion. Um, there is a, this policy, I call it additive policy. This policy acts restrictive voter access legislation and a larger nexus. And that nexus includes what I already talked about, the Supreme Court and the Voting Rights Act having preclearance pretty much eviscerated. All this legislation passed that I just talked about before that court decision right? and that the court has now made it easier and localities that have um, shown racial bias before um, to pass this. So that's a part of this policy suite. Second, um, the decisions on political voice by the Supreme Court. Everybody knows about Citizens United Fewer people know about McCutcheons um, That took off the um, uh, penalty You can now give as much money uh, There's no aggregate cap In the amount of money you can give All these things Equate money with political voice right? Restrictive voters Access legislation is class based It is race based And on top of that Those who are quite affluent Can give unlimited amounts in political campaigns. So those at the very top have had their voice enlarged. At the very same time, those at the bottom, lower income individuals, people of color, are more apt to live in states where their access, their voice has been limited by this legislation. Adding to that, gerrymandering. All this operates on top of uh, evidence in political science that shows in many states how racialized the practice of gerrymandering congressional districts is. Additive policy suite as well. One in eight African American men in the United States can't vote because of felony disenfranchisement, okay? So, those individuals, we're not even talking about right now. They're taken off the table. Vesla Weaver, who's a political scientist at Yale, her research shows that even if you're not that individual male who can't vote because of felony disenfranchisement, but this affects communities, this affects families that say, well, you know, my husband, my partner, my brother, whatever, if he can't vote, why would I want to either, right? It has a demoralizing effect. So that's just the straight up right to vote. Okay. Then we move. Since 1996, we've seen incredibly punitive changes in social welfare policy. Joe Soss, who's a um, political scientist at the University of Minnesota, has found those who claim welfare, compared to like others similarly poor, have lower efficacy. After claiming welfare, they're less likely to vote. The single best predictor is my research with Joe and some others of whether states chose to get really tougher on welfare, percentage of African Americans in the state, okay? So first, the right to vote with felony disenfranchisement. Second, the efficacy to vote with social welfare policy. And now the third part, if if you've gotten over those hurdles, we're adding restrictive voter access legislation to you. So this is a policy suite that's operating together and is mutually reinforcing. And last in this um, portion, the representational bias of this. Um, Mendez and Gross have done really fascinating work here, and they, it, was, it, was a, it, it it's a genius study, um, but what they found in the study is that legislators who supported voter ID laws were less likely to respond to Latino constituents versus Anglos who inquire as to whether an ID is necessary to vote. They're less responsive to those individuals. So voter access and restrictive voter access, we should be having this discussion, we are having this discussion, okay? But I think it's equally important to connect the policy dots. Again, we know what's going on in Baltimore right now. This policy suite, these additive policies are a stew and they are stew that is racially targeted along class lines. So, now that you're depressed, <laughs> deeply depressed, um, I, I don't wanna say you shouldn't be <laughs> uh, because the evidence strongly supports there, but I also think um, there's room for activism here and there are things we should talk about, okay? Um, but that, the, the, it requires activism, both outsider protest and insider running for office, lobbying, model legislation, litigation, et cetera, okay? There's real cost to that kind of activism. First, if you're having, we're now having to refight this fight, right? Resources are limited, so it means other things like criminal justice policy might not be talked about as much, like social welfare policy might not be talked about um, enough. We're having to refight fights in an era of hyper-partisanship, that it's very hard to have a discussion across the aisle on this. Congress, I, I will, uh, I, I'm not a Vegas person because I don't have enough money to go, but if I could bet that Congress will do nothing on preclearance, I would put everything I own plus everything Philip owns on that, and we would be quite wealthy. Okay? Um, and we have seen since 2012, via that activism, via that contacting, via interest groups working, that 18 states, plus D.C. have expanded access to the ballot since 2012. That is very good news. And these states run the political gamut. Um, South Carolina, Virginia, West Virginia, here in Massachusetts, Louisiana, Chicago, Minnesota, California. Um, 18 states plus D.C. have taken opposite action um, as a result of people working on the ground. These include things like online voter registration systems, Pre-registering 16 and 17-year-olds, same-day registration, as well as election day registration. And uh, that, that data is from the Brennan Center. So, um, last but not least, if you're going to be active on these issues, not all legislation is equal. Elizabeth Rigby, who's at George Washington University, has found that some of these reforms that feel good um, actually an increase inequality and turnout so um, something we call them convenience voting things like um, no excuse early voting or just early voting in general um, is sold to the polls. Um, We hear that but actually and the overall macro data shows us that that increases inequality and turnout because people, higher income people who are apt to vote anyway are the very ones who use those convenience voting things uh, or, or legislation. So if you're going to, pr- if, you want, if you, and not everyone will, but if you want to undermine inequality and turnout, convenience voting isn't the way to go. Rather, the registration reforms that make it easier to register to vote, like mail-in registration, motor voter, moving the deadline closer, are better. And indeed, the silver bullet, if you could get one thing passed to really um, undermine inequality and turnout, um, same-day registration. Uh, nine states have same-day registration, North Dakota has no registration, um, which I always point out, uh, it's a little bit after April 15th, I didn't have to register to pay my taxes. Uh, why do I have to register to vote? The, that is the single best reform if you want to have um, uh, the, the folks that vote more uh, better approximate what America actually looks like and what we actually make. So. In conclusions, what I'd like to—the um, the takeaways from um, my talk—the first is to place restrictive voter access legislation in the historical narrative. It's not new. I call it an EKG, right? With the slope going up, we have these back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. But the overall slope is definitely towards increased voter access. Nonetheless. We're in an era of a pullback, a pushback against that. It's not new, um, which means it can be changed. Second, and that my research um, from my co-author Keith and I, the adoption of voter ID laws and cousin legislation has been driven by racial, class, and partisan considerations. Those are the facts. This isn't he shed, she said. This is evidence-based with the most advanced statistical modeling. That's what we find, not to cede those facts. That's what's going on. Third, restrictive voter access legislation is a part of an interconnected policy suite that is um, disproportionately felt uh, amongst racial minorities in the United States that make it harder to vote and harder to participate in all forms of political life and social life. And lastly, I would say advocate wisely. If you're going to advocate, push for same-day registration. That's the most bang for your buck. And so uh, as I take my seat, um, the topic of tonight, the concern for the health of American democracy is warranted. It is deeply warranted by this legislation. So thank you.
8: Uh, Again, regression and, and suppression. You know, one of the questions that comes up Comes up immediately, not in the the context of of, um, of systematic voting, but, but what people would call the ordinary, what the, they would in fact describe as um, common sense. Why not simply show an ID at uh, a ballot uh, at the ballot box at the at the poll station in order to vote? How does that in any way infringe upon anyone's uh, civil liberties, anyone's voting rights?
7: Well, I think my answer to that is twofold. One, um, we've never required it before, right? And so the right to vote isn't the same thing as getting on an airplane, right? I don't have a right to get on an airplane. Um, I don't have a right to buy booze, (laughs) but I don't have a right to a library, book, but I do have a right to vote. And so it's something different. And if everybody had one, it would be different, but we know those who don't are disproportionately poor and they're disproportionately of color. So that's why, that's my pushback there. And secondly, I would also say that nobody cared about this prior to 2005. So the political scientists, and when people start paying attention, and when, you know, regular folks, if we walked out on the yard there and brought up this voter ID stuff, just like you said to me, like, it's not that hard, just get an ID. How did that become so resonant? How did that gain traction? How in 10 years to regulate, I wish people cared more about public policy, but why is this such an issue? Okay? I think voter ID has become a symbolic policy. It's been, um, uh, and I should say that it, all the research suggests that fraud doesn't go on. Uh, Lorraine Minute, and other people have have tested all that d- does this really occur no, but it 's still indeed uh, the opposite problem. <laughs> Our problem is people don 't vote, not that they impersonate themselves to vote uh, you know um, th- that 's just not the problem we have so to me then the question becomes how has voter ID be- taken on such symbolic residence amongst pa- mass publics and I think a lot of that has to do with seen um, massive changes and demographics in the United States. And the election of Barack Obama, an African-American man, has been deeply threatening. It's about something else.
8: Well, has this been steered, what we're seeing in terms of what some call voter suppression, mm-hmm. has have we been steered to this point in our history? And by that, I, I ask this question, Aaron. Mm-hmm. You have an organization called the American Legislative Exchange mm-hmm. Council, ALEC. Which is fairly famous right now. Mm-hmm. It's been inv- it's been looked at by 60 Minutes. It's been looked at by Frontline. It's an organization of legisl- that basically legislators pay hundred dollars over mm-hmm. two years. They join this organization. It's funded by Bank of America, other organizations, uh, corporate organizations mm-hmm. in the country. And among the uh, uh, the items that they recommended was stricter voter mm-hmm. ID. What? But they also happen to be an organization that uh, supports. Uh, uh, if you will, less uh, labor laws, mm-hmm. uh, any number of things that, if you will, help or assist corporations in, uh, in terms of uh, b- 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 moving toward the bottom line
0: mm-hmm. in, a,
8: in a vast and massive way. Mm-hmm. What does ALEC have to do with this uh, discussion, and are they, in fact, steering, the discussion that we're having today.
7: Uh, ALEC has been incredibly effective, and you you said how much legislators um, pay to join ALEC. The corporations and those folks, you're all at the same table, and you have the same voting rights, and those corporations pay a lot more money to be sitting at that table. And, And as a political scientist, they've been incredibly effective. And They'll put forth model legislation. They get these state legislators together. They literally hand you, "Here's what your bill should look like," and then state legislators go home and introduce that legislation. So, Alec has harnessed um, the, uh, the, the, not the the ears of many state legislators, and they got real bang for their buck. You go to this fancy conference, you get handed this model legislation, you're told why it's good, and you go back. You have the choice to introduce it or not, but you chose to go to that meeting, so and you're apt to do it. Um, so uh, ALEC has uh, allowed for this policy to proliferate in such a fast way, but they're not the only actor. And I will say, I, I'm bringing it up in the talk, we actually tested a variable for ALEC influence. Um, we looked at um, how many members of each state legislature um, had joined ALEC or had been to an ALEC conference. TO SEE IF THAT WAS DRIVING PROPOSAL AND PASSAGE. AND THE VARIABLE REALLY DIDN'T COME UP, BECAUSE I ACTUALLY DON'T THINK IT WAS A PERFECT VARIABLE, BECAUSE WE HAD TO DIG IN AND IT WASN'T A DIRECT, WE DIDN'T ASK EACH LEGISLATOR, ARE YOU A PART OF THIS? SO IN THE variables, IT DIDN'T COME UP, BUT AS AN AGENDA SETTER, INITIALLY GETTING THE IDEA OUT THERE AND GETTING IT IN THE HEADS OF LEGISLATURES ACROSS THE COUNTRY, THEY'VE BEEN INCREDIBLY EFFECTIVE BECAUSE THEY DO POLITICS REALLY WELL.
8: Well, uh, did, did it depend on state by state in terms of, for example, Florida I know is more <laughs> impacted by Alec than other states. Right. For example, I mean. Did it it
7: didn't, so for the, as a 50-state explanation, no, it didn't come up for proposal and passage. But you're right, in individual states, they've been incredibly effective. But the analysis I presented here is of the 50 states, what's driving it overall, that's not to discount the fact that Alec, um, uh, got the ball rolling. And then other, you know, states have taken it on.
8: No doubt a number of people here have probably seen the movie uh, Selma. Mm-hmm. And this year, of course, we're celebrating the march across the uh, Edmund Pettus Bridge mm-hmm. and the, uh, the horror that many people encountered as they crossed that bridge in the form of uh, state troopers beating people uh, mm-hmm. to, uh, in, in a terrible, terrible way. Uh, what we also see this year, of course, is the anniversary of the Voting Rights Act uh, in August 1965. Mm -hmm. So one of the questions I have is when you talk about, uh, when you talk about grassroots organizing, are we missing that right now in the effort to push back what again, many empirically acknowledge uh, as uh, Mm -hmm. voter suppression? Is there something happening on the grassroots? You intimated that there, that, there, that can happen. But is that, in fact, happening to push this back?
7: You know, I would say yes and no, which is such a cop-out answer. <laughs> but um, it, yes, on the grassroots. But think of, like I, said, I mentioned, the League of Women Voters. I've given a couple of talks to their national group, and I just spoke to their group in Ohio, for instance. Like, that's, that's a group that is just about getting people to participate in politics. I mean, how can you dislike the League of Women Voters? But they're a group by saying we have a problem with restrictive voter access legislation. They're against many of the, you know, shortening early voting. They're against those things. Indeed, they want to expand ways to get people to the polls. They have been typified uh, increasingly as hyper, they're, they're, you know, they're deeply partisan or they're biased which is absurd to me. But I think when you enter into the, the fray on this and go in with the evidence, uh, the, the, the evidence is incredibly compelling here, but the, um, those who forward those claims, it, it enters, I think, into this sort of vortex of all claims are equal. And if you're saying voter access is a problem, you're automatically this you know, crazy hippie lefty or whatever. But actually, it, to me, it strikes me as a, it, it's an incredibly nonpartisan issue, or it should be in many ways. It's about securing access to the ballot. It's not about telling you who to vote for. It's securing access. Um, and so this is a long answer to your question, but I would say the grassroots activism has been typified as deeply partisan when you're saying access to the ballot. And that's part of the difficulty for grassroots groups because voter ID is now, if you're for it, you're a Republican, and if you're against it, a Democrat, when it wasn't that way 10 years ago. So I think there, there is an uphill battle amongst some of these grassroots groups to get, I mean, what do you do if you're in a state that's controlled by a Republican governor and the state legislature is controlled by Republicans? grassroots activism in those states is much more difficult because you're going in with a partisan issue.
8: Speaking of that, it, mm-hmm. you know, it seems that it's, it's a Vortex is right because mm-hmm. it seems hard to escape when, you're, when you, in fact, as a political scientist, mm-hmm. are presenting uh, uh, empirical, are, are mm-hmm. presenting your well-detailed analysis of, of evidence-based uh, mm-hmm. of, of facts that you have uh, been looking at for some mm-hmm. time. but, But many people still treat this as a debate, mm-hmm. uh, including journalists.
3: Mm-hmm.
8: Uh, journalists say, yes. they're, they're on, this hand, mm-hmm. this, on this hand, you have this, on this hand, you have this. But the question is, I, I'm looking at a few anecdotal mm-hmm. uh, incidents over the past few years that have come up since uh, 2008, mm-hmm. particularly since 2010, with the sweep uh, by, uh, by Republicans mm-hmm. uh, across the country, the Tea Party. And I'm looking, for example, at voter ID law, Uh, enactment in or attempt to enact in Pennsylvania where Mike uh, Terze, who was the uh, Pennsylvania House Majority Leader, said that this voter ID law uh, will will guarantee that Romney will win the state of of, uh, Pennsylvania, Mm -hmm. anecdote one. Two, uh, U.S. Chamber of Commerce uh, commerce um, remarks made by Chris Christie uh, where he basically... Uh, militated against same-day same registration <clears throat> and said that we need to get rid of same-day registration and in that way we need to win uh, more gubernatorial races so that we can end same-day mm-hmm. re- registration. This is a, an interesting one I found, which is that um, you have Ted Yoho. What an interesting name, huh? <laughs> yeah. Ted Those Yoho. Substitute
7: teachers hated him. That's hate right, <laughs> who,
8: who, uh, who uh, of course... Uh, you, you spoke about property rights, mm-hmm. and, of course, property rights, when we think about property rights, we think about how that, that very notion, disenfranchise uh, blacks mm-hmm. that disenfranchise immigrants that disenfranchised poor people and women for many mm-hmm. years. Well, in 2014, he advocated uh, that property rights should be the determinant
3: <laughs> for voting <laughs> uh,
8: in, uh, in, in this country. You have Don Yelton, the GOP chair of um, Boone County, um, uh, That's a very famous example, Mm -hmm. of course, uh, where he said that the point of voter laws was that it hurts a bunch of lazy blacks who, uh, and that the law is going to kick the Dems, Democrats, Mm -hmm. in the butt, Mm -hmm. quote, unquote. You have actually, over the course of a day, I've came up with about 70 Mm
7: -hmm.
8: uh, examples of this sort why is this a debate
7: oh geez um why is well first off let me say political parties have done this for years and that all those examples you gave are are incredibly resonant um the the republicans are faced with a choice right like the, the current the demographics of their party right now um will not allow them to keep winning if they don't change so you have two choices there. One, um, you expand the tent, right? You go big tent, you, you try to bring in young people, you bring in individuals of color, mm-hmm. or you try to cut into the other side's base, mm-hmm. right? And this is a long-standing actual debate in political science when, uh, when um, elections are tight and the electorate is changing, what do, what do parties do? And what we see here, parties are self-interested. Um, those quotes are, are, are incredibly ugly, and it, I would just point out, it doesn't even require malice. You know, some of it, it, they're just acting in self-interest once they made the choice not to go into that big tent. Your bigger question, though, is why is this still a debate? Um, uh, that's, that's a huge question. One, because you know, it's a 30-second environment. You know, It took me a half an hour to talk about that stuff, and who wants to hear about regression all the time? But it's also that this bias, I call it, or Jules Boykoff um, is a political scientist as well, has called this the bias of balance. And you talked about reporters. Some, you know, they'll have somebody who's for voter ID and somebody against voter ID. Or somebody says it's about race and somebody who says it's not about race. The question has been settled. The, bi- the bias there is bringing in both sides. It's like, you know, is the sky blue? Well, I have someone who's going to argue yes and somebody who's going to argue No. But we treat it that way, so we continue to treat it as a debate, and it's in, uh, quite frankly, right now it's in Republicans' interest to treat it that way. Indeed, I was doing an NPR show in Ohio, and they taped my portion, and then they taped a portion with the um, chair of the Ohio GOP, and so I was, you know, going through the evidence similar as I did here, and his response to to me, now we weren't in the same room or else would have gone a little differently, but um, he, he said, she, uh, "I don't know her, and she might be nice, but she's that's she's the most stupid person I've ever heard. That's the most so me personally, ad hominem. She's oh. she I was like, well, okay, you must know very smart people, no. Um, but uh, the, instead of attacking the evidence, attack the person, right? Because the evidence on this, I say, here's the report. What did, what did we do wrong?" What variables need to be in there? Because I'm in the business of getting it right. Uh, I want to know what's going on. So the, the personal attack, the the right is winning, quite frankly, when it, it remains a debate. When it stops being a debate and the evidence is X, then they've lost. So In
8: 1961, um, of course, you had, um, uh, in fact, people from this area who boarded buses mm-hmm. following um, the example of, of students freedom riders mm-hmm. who boarded buses and went south, the idea of going south was to create an atmosphere where people could not just we, voting was was something that wasn 't even talked about as right. much as it was just a question of access to uh, water fountains uh, mm-hmm. of, on an equal basis and the whole notion of the, the notion of living a decent life, I uh, traveled with some students to recreate the uh, the freedom ride a few years mm-hmm. ago uh, in. 2011 and talking with uh, some of the people along the ride there was a question of this relativity uh, that f- folks were uh, wanted to do better but they but you actually had people in those days black mm-hmm. people disenfranchised black people mm-hmm. said so things aren't that bad right. so on and so forth it was this whole notion of a shifting baseline mm-hmm. to borrow a scientific term mm-hmm. and uh, so I guess my, my question is this though when you look back at 1961, which seems so far away, mm-hmm. medieval, in terms of our country's history, and yet right now we're talking about uh, in Kansas, for example, where uh, the Secretary of State there, Chris Kobach, is in charge of a, uh, an effort to, uh, to essentially purge millions of people, thousands of people, I should say, mm-hmm. from in, in Kansas from the polls, uh, who, who they believe have uh, wh- their ID is problematic. Mm-hmm. Their registration is problematic. And so you're right. It's not a question of ID in this, in this case. It's a question of, regis- of registration. Mm-hmm. My question, uh, Aaron, is ultimately won't the courts have to decide these things because the legislatures uh, essentially are, are packed with partisans. Mm-hmm. The courts... Uh, of course, is part of the balance of our nation. Mm-hmm. Are the are is what people turn to, are what people turn to in order to weed these things out. Can the courts be relied upon, uh, such that the court the country does not go back to 1961, these regressions sure. and mm-hmm. progressions?
7: Um, no, I mean uh, just and in part, this is the, the the way we do our elections is incredibly confusing and each state could write, and then county level and all this stuff. So it means a singular court decision, they can decide, the courts can decide something in Texas and decide something else here, and decide something else there. It's incredibly confusing. And even that confusion drives people away from the polls because they're not sure. And the Supreme Court and you know I gave you the Indiana case um, and 2007 it was decided that voter IDs were okay um, and we just saw the 5-4 decision in Shelby and so I don't think it's a matter of going back to 1961 they're not going to that it's sort of it's second order it's Jim Crow 2.0 it's much more subtle like no one is going to or very few Americans are going to say I'm okay with you cutting off the right to vote to particular individuals they're just not going to be okay with that but this this sort of steady trickle of voter ID. Well, why do you need same day registration? What's the problem with registration thirty days in advance? Why do you need to vote on Sundays? Those sorts of decision or those sorts of the trickle of legislation, the courts to date have been very uneven, I should say.
8: Pennsylvania for example, mm-hmm. where uh, I forgot which court it was that overturned Pennsylvania's right. ID law but
7: uh and then right and then texas had this one i in my notes there i have like it, right prior to the 2014 election you know in minnesota there was one decision in texas it was a different one so it creates a real confusion so i i my um i'm not confident that the court the supreme court there is going to um, get rid of this stuff if it ever became taking away the right to vote, as in you can't vote, you can't vote. Yes, the court would get involved, but this is more subtle, and the justices have been quite divided.
8: Well, we're coming up, of course, to 2016, a major election. Mm -hmm. Uh, It could bring uh, a first woman president, or it could uh, mean... uh, something more uh, more unexpected. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen, All, but we do know that it's going to be extraordinarily contested. Yes, we we know that there, that voting rights and, and access to voting, and purging of, uh, as some uh, describe mm-hmm. it, will in fact take place. What are you anticipating for two, 2016? And is the country ready to have a fair election in the context of voting uh, suppression?
7: Uh- no, I, I don't think the country will. I mean, I mean we just, the 22 more states have done this since uh, will be in, in um, it will be implemented since that that weren't in place in 2008. In 2008, I think the interesting, um, well, some more legislation will be in place. We've never had, as I said, uh, a presidential election with this stuff implemented. In so many places. So, so first, the, the groundwork has changed here in terms of the amount of legislation at the state level that will be on the books, and it will be the first time we act on it. I also talked about, though, that um, where African American voters were really mobilized in those particular states, if it was a swing state and they had really upticked in turnout between 2004 and 2008, that that provided sort of a, a line in the sand. Those states were less likely to pass some of this stuff, and we argue, it was, we think it was because the, the fear of the backlash. But if, if Hillary Clinton is the Democratic nominee. African-Americans are not nearly as excited about Hillary Clinton as they were about Barack Obama in mass. So what we could have is more of this legislation in place and a less mobilized electorate of color.
8: The question I think many will ask, and then I'm gonna open up this up to the audience, is that about Latino voters. Uh, Latino Mm -hmm. voters, and we're talking about New Mexico, we're we're talking about uh, 50 states, actually. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's no longer a confined demographic. Mm -hmm. Uh, How might uh, Latino populations and, secondarily, Native Mm -hmm. American populations, uh, how might they be affected Mm -hmm. by some of the voting laws on the books uh, that we're that we're seeing
7: if you want to if you want to read a deeply depressing history um which who doesn't <laughs> um, read uh, the histories of the right to vote amongst native americans um, and the laws have changed
0: so they should inform you, people of that you
9: when you go to the V, you used to be able to change your license that day and walk out with it now you get a receipt i think the opposing factor doesn't want me to vote There's a certain group of people that they don't want to vote because they don't vote the way that they want them to vote. These people want to stay.
6: The Handmaid's Tale, while it's like a horrific, nightmarish dystopia, it might turn out to be dated by the fact that it was created and written in the era that it was. And the circumstances that we now face based with Surveillance, technology, uh, all, all of the tools that an aspiring theocratic dictator or authoritarian might have at their disposal could make The Handmaid's Tale look quaint almost in comparison.
5: The hypocrisy of Gilead is that it's steeped in this religious veneer and we know that the um, commanders go and uh, Um, seek their own pleasures outside of the confines of their own moral etiquette Mm -hmm. that they are deeply homophobic, that uh, they are really rapists and uh, somehow cover everything with this veneer of religion. And so do you have the impression that when Atwood wrote The Handmaid's Tale in 1985 that uh, she already debunked those myths that that to say extreme religious groups were um, uh, morally impeccable. Do you think that this is more the case now, or do you think that you find that that things haven't really changed since 1985?
10: So when it came to my family and unfor- our unfortunate involvement in the in the pro life movement, the anti abortion movement, um, our first task was not to fight against Naral and Planned Parenthood or various feminist activists. It was the fight within evangelicalism for the heart of the movement. And our family was part, along with Jerry Falwell, Dr. Dobson of Focus on the Family, and other figures that came up that really pushed it to the right. And of course, the abortion issue was the means, but the reason the Republican Party signed on is because it was a way they could get more voters once we turned it into a movement. The reason the biggie time evangelical leaders signed on, like, like for instance, Jerry Falwell, was beca- and Dr. Dobson and many others, is because they saw unlimited fundraising p- possibilities by churning up what I, I call the outrage machine. And so it's amazing to me that Margaret Atwood had the, the perspective that she did, because in a way, her book, which, uh, what was the publication date? 80- 85, 1985. 85, yeah. 85. If you think about the the storming of Congress um, in January 6, you know, how many, I'm very bad at math, speaking of dyslexia, but how many years is that? Because in a sense, she was writing an almost prophetic vision of the future to come. Because in the the book, she has uh, Congress being decimated, people killed. She has this sort of right-wing movement that is very much present with us now in the militias. Um, You think about uh, the storming of the Capitol and the the, the Trump presidency that depended entirely upon the white evangelical vote. You know, you can take Putin out of it. You can do all sorts of things. But if you take the white evangelical voter out, Trump's never president. So when, um, when, when, when people like Ralph Reed, who, by the way, got into politics because of me and my dad sat down with Trump and gave him a list of the Federalist Society judges that he wanted appointed in, in trade for bringing the evangelical vote. This is like a page ripped out of the, of Atwood's book. I mean, this, this is genuine, you know, political deal-making and machination aimed at women's rights most directly.
6: This thing has been churning and growing for much, much longer than, Donald, than when Donald Trump came down the golden escalator in Trump Tower in New York City.
5: We hope you'll join us in this urgent discussion, If America Fails, live streaming at the TruthWorks Network YouTube channel. If America Fails, Thursday, 8 p.m. We hope you'll join us for episode four of If America Fails, The Coming Tyranny. America Under Siege, The March to Unpersoning with Dr. James C. McIntosh. Live streaming. All episodes are available on demand. Visit ifamericafails.live, a TruthWorks network. Production. And America Fails. Are you sure?
9: The laws have changed. They should inform you about that. You, when you go to the V, you used to be able to change your license that day and walk out with it. Now you get a receipt. I think the opposing factor doesn't want me to vote. There's a certain group of people that they don't want to vote because they don't vote the way that they want them to vote. These people want to stay in power, and so in order to stay in power, they change the voting system so you're frustrated when you go to the polls to vote, if you get there. since I was 18. The day I turned 18 my mother said go across the street and register to vote and that's what I did. Now instead of getting your driver's license right away or the state ID you have to wait because our IDs are processed in California. That is different to other states that's different for us that's one of the changes in the law that people don't know about. Do you need help getting an ID? No. no. Do you have to register to vote? No, I'm already
2: registered.
9: You need a state ID? Yes,
2: ma'am.
9: Um, I can assist you in getting a state ID. Um, do you have a birth certificate?
2: No.
9: Do you have proof no, I of birth my uh,
1: what?
9: I'll call you and we can set up a time so I can take you to the DNV. Okay. So you tell these people that I'm going to call now. Yeah, yeah,
10: yeah. Oh, it's you. <laughs>
9: I'm going to call and set up a time that I can come and get her and take her to the DNV. Okay. Thank you, Mary. Okay. I look forward to helping you. Okay. So if I take her to the DNV, we will say that she needs an ID so she can vote. That way, the ID will be free. Now she doesn't have a birth certificate. That's strike one against her. So the DNV is going to have to do the petition process for her to verify birth date and municipality. I'm in a condo way west. Everybody's registered to vote over there. But there's pockets like this where you will find a lot of people that are not registered to vote. When I first started doing this job, I was only educating people on their rights inside the polls. But then, you know, things started changing. The laws started changing.
11: You no, know, I need a clipboard and I need clutch cards without initials. It's very much a very segregated city and it shows in economics and the way the neighborhoods look. It's the worst place in the nation to raise a black child. And it's the most segregated city. A black woman I honestly love voting from just the history of voting and how it affects especially minorities and black people and being a black woman I love going to the polls I'm like this is my this time I'm gonna vote you're gonna hear me whether you like it or not hi do you guys mind if we talk to you for a quick Oh. hi oh, <laughs> Even the places that do have a high voter turnout are really being affected by less people going out to vote. Even elderly people who have been voting in every election for years, they don't have the proper photo ID to vote. These are all that we got. I got 38 yesterday. Worked hard. hard. The 2016 election
12: was the first election with this law in place, and something that we came to realize, well, like our student ID, for example, isn't voter ID compliant, because in order for it to be compliant, it needs to have a signature and an expiration date, and our IDs don't have that. I also went to a session from the ACLU where they talked about somebody from a low-income community had only a bus pass. And their bus pass had their photo on it, but it's not VOTER ID compliant. And from where they lived, there wasn't a bus line that could get them to the DMV.
11: Or even for transgender people, or mm-hmm. um, non-gender conforming people, who they are might not match their ID, or might not match like any of the documents that they have, so why should they be barred from voting, too? Oh.
9: I do feel that the intent was to make it harder for low-income people, people of color, people with disabilities, senior citizens, students, it's just to make it harder for them to vote. Any way this government can win an election, they will. They don't have enough substance to stop us from voting. So, as my mom used to say, they gag at a gnat and swallow a camel. (laughs) So any little thing they can find wrong, they will use that against us to say that, you know, we're cheating when we go to vote. I need as much help as I can get. And if we can work together to educate people on the voting laws and encourage people to go to the polls to vote, this
11: is a great thing. And this is Senya, and we work. <laughs> Your makeup's is really pretty, by the way. Thank you. We work for this organization called Lit, which is leaders igniting transformation, and we train youth to be socially active. We give them information about how they can vote and where they can vote because they do have online registration. We typically take phones and tablets with us so we can also register them right around the door if they so wish to get registered.
9: Some groups uh, felt intimidated when they went to vote because um, they felt that people laughed at them because they didn't understand everything. But what I do is I go with them and advocate for them with them, and let them know everything that they need.
11: They hate the treatment they get at the polls or they hate the treatment that they get at the voter registration place. So just finding out that there's a person who's willing to help them who just came to their door versus them having to go to another place, that helps them a lot too. Yesterday like wasn't really the day. Yeah. So like usually our average day, we might get like 20 plus cars. Yesterday we almost got like 40. It's hard for them to get that information. So we try to help as best as we could, especially our immediate
12: Mhm. And like even things as simple as registering students on campus. If they're not from Wisconsin, they have an out-of-state driver's license, which doesn't work. And then their student ID doesn't work either. It's just all about explaining what they need to be able to
11: vote. Usually we get like the big group where they're sitting out here and we're like, hey, can we bother you? And usually they're like, "Uh, I guess. They're like, oh, you're not passing out any nomination papers? Okay, we'll sign. A little cardio.
13: and had some of the highest voter turnout in the nation. We used to buy with other states, like Minnesota, to have the highest voter turnout. Now, unfortunately, we're heading in the wrong direction thanks to our restrictive voter ID law. It has confused voters. There's a lot of evidence that the voter ID law suppresses voter turnout, especially students, the elderly, and people of color. Does this seem like something that people who are confident about winning a fair election would do? I don't think so.
14: You know that a lot of Republicans since 1984 in the presidential races have not been able
10: to win in Wisconsin. Why would it be any different for Ted Cruz or Donald Trump? Well, I think Hillary Clinton is about the weakest candidate the Democrats have ever put up. And now we have photo ID. And I think photo ID is going to make a little bit of a difference as well
13: even if they weren't being so brazen as to say in public that laws like this will help one candidate or another win, we can look at the results and see that this is wrong. Studies in Wisconsin have come up with numbers ranging from anywhere from tens of thousands of voters to even hundreds of thousands of voters, eligible voters, who were either prevented from voting or discouraged from voting in the 2016 election. And to put that in perspective, President Trump carried Wisconsin by 22,000 votes this law is discriminatory, we think it's unconstitutional. If they pass this with the best of intentions and have learned since then that it's having these damaging effects, then okay, but let's admit that and let's get rid of this law.
9: I haven't heard a crazy story about voter fraud I don't know any, I'm sorry, I don't know any crazy stories about voting fraud because it doesn't happen in Wisconsin. (laughs)
11: <laughs> I've never heard of it And I've had a lot of friends work the polls And they've never had any instances of voter fraud I feel like people just kind of make up like Different <laughs> stories <laughs> Because in actuality, voter fraud does not happen Like hardly ever
13: In the real world, no one Or almost no one, at great personal Legal risk, is going to try To impersonate somebody else to cast one or two votes I worked in 2016 During the recount, and we
0: didn't have One uh, single voter fraud fraud that popped up. I waited in the county clerk's offices, and they recounted ballots and the counts did not change based off of some type of voter fraud. Did you guys register
11: online or did you do it Do you guys know what your voting polls are?
12: I think
0: the community knows the importance of this election coming up mm-hmm. and they want to do all that they can to make sure that young people are engaged in this election in a meaningful way.
9: We have gained up to probably three thousand people to register
0: to vote like just by
15: doing stuff like this.
0: Yeah.
11: Yeah, it's the primary
0: for it. We're canvassing, we're phone banking, we're text banking, we're meeting people where they're at. And uh, in the state of Wisconsin in particular, Scott Walker knows that if young people do vote in numbers, that we will be able to vote him out of office. I want to organize and continue the work that we've been doing and the coalition work that we've been doing to continue to push back against Governor Walker's oppressive butter rights uh, legislation. I just heard that uh, the next policy point for Republicans in this state was to get rid of same-day registration, and I'm saying no to that.
9: I just wanna make sure that people are aware of the election and they know that they have to take a photo ID to the polls when they go and vote.
0: Yeah, I got my ID ready.
9: Okay. At first when they started changing laws, I would go out one day and say, these are the changes, this is what you have to do. I would go to bed and go to sleep. And when I woke up the next morning, the law had changed again. And then I would have to go back and say, no, no, you can't do this. This is what you have to do. That's why people were so confused in the beginning, you know, because they weren't sure themselves. If I go in a church, I can speak to 300 people at one time. Everybody in the room gets one of these cards. It shows you everything that you need when you go to the polls to vote. The more people that get their IDs, the pool does get smaller. But there are those people out there that don't know that I can get an ID. Those are the people that I'm trying to reach, and that's why I go around talking to people as much as I can.
11: Young people should be involved in the voting process because this is our future. There is no other way to put it. We're still fighting for basic human rights in 2018, and we're still fighting to be heard. It's more of a balance act, so you have to find a balance. So you have to be able to take the discouragement that you're feeling and use it to motivate yourself Mm -hmm. and your community.
16: Texas, the latest battleground in a nationwide GOP effort to pass new laws restricting voting access. The push comes as many in the party continue to falsely claim that the 2020 election was rigged.
4: The integrity of elections in 2020 were questioned
16: right here in Harris County. Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott and Republicans who control the state legislature say changes are needed to ensure election security. They're gearing up to pass new legislation that, if signed into law, will lead to sweeping changes for how Texans can vote. It especially affects diverse urban counties that expanded voting options amid the pandemic.
8: We must pass laws to prevent election officials from jeopardizing the election process.
16: Democrats and some Texas-based businesses, including American Airlines and Dell Technologies, are opposing the bill. The fight, and the fight is no longer needed. Meanwhile, young activists in Texas are trying to push back. One of them is 25-year-old Ophelia Alonzo from the organization Texas Rising. She drove six hours from her home in Brownsville, near the Mexico border, to Austin to speak out. It's
15: like telling them, like but your voter participation was so good that you're getting punished for it. The GOP legislation follows record-high early vote turnout
16: last year in large metro areas like Houston. That was after election officials added measures to make voting easier, including 24-hour and drive through voting. Legislation passed by the state Senate would outlaw those expanded voting options. 28-year-old Tiara Cooper, an organizer with the nonpartisan group Faith in Texas, helps register voters in her community of South Dallas. It's an area where predominantly black neighborhoods already lack resources for voting infrastructure and education. South Dallas cannot withstand another barrier. As a formerly incarcerated black woman, Cooper is concerned about the bill's enhanced criminal penalties for voting offenses. It's already hard as a, as a person of, of these communities to be an active voter. The legislation would make it a felony for election officials or organizers to send out unsolicited applications to vote by mail. At the same time, under the GOP bills, partisan poll watchers would get more access to polling places. The practice became a flashpoint in the aftermath of the 2020 election. After former President Trump falsely claimed that the election was stolen from him, a number of poll watchers, who were Trump supporters, stormed election facilities. Republicans say the legislation is in part about creating fairness in the voting system they argue higher populated counties that tend to vote for Democrats shouldn't get more time to vote than rural counties that trend Republicans. Alonzo rejects that argument. So
12: if the Republican intent for voter integrity and cohesion were true, they would create a system that was more accessible overall.
14: Move passage Senate Bill 7.
16: Republican State Senator Brian Hughes co-authored one of the Texas bills known as Senate Bill 7. What do you say to some who think that this bill is based on a lie? And do you yourself think that 2020, the election, was fraudulent?
14: Texas elections in 2020 went much better than other states. You can look at the results here. We didn't have near the problems that a number of states had.
16: So do you believe that the 2020 election was, was, was fair, That it was, that President Biden was legitimately elected?
14: President Biden is the president. Uh, He did not win in Texas. President Trump won in Texas. And a lot of people say we're unhappy about the 2020 election in Texas. Republicans did great in Texas in the 2020 election. We held the Texas House, held the Texas Senate, held every seat in Congress. And so if we were concerned about that, this wouldn't even be an issue. This is about making the system better. We do this every time the legislature meets.
16: The bills also limit the number and location of polling places in only a handful of counties in Texas with populations of at least 1 million people. What do you say to the criticism that regardless of the intent of this law, that it will make it harder for some people, including people of color, black people, disabled people, to
14: vote? Well, so I hear that generalization, but no one has shown me any evidence of it. This bill says that in those urban counties, that the polling places have to be distributed evenly across the county. Now that's just straight-up fairness based on where the voters live, regardless of their race, of their party, of their ethnic background, their religion.
4: What
10: I'm worried about is how un-American this whole initiative is. It's sick. Democrats, including President Biden, have
16: spoken out against the Republican voting bills in Texas and across the country. Cortland Cox, a veteran civil rights activist, helped lead the fight for voting rights during the 1960s, especially across the South. Back then, he was an organizer with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Cox says one of the most concerning trends among the GOP's current effort is an attempt to disqualify votes after their cast. It's about ballots that poured in, and nobody but a few knew where they came from. Like Trump's push to throw out tens of thousands of valid mail ballots in the 2020 election. Cox calls it voter nullification. It's
6: very clear, if we get around the voter suppression, at the end of the day,
0: they're gonna try to say that is not legal, this cannot stand, and we will do whatever it is to make sure that if you win, we will,
6: will nullify your votes.
16: If the Texas legislation passes, Organizers like Ophelia Alonzo say they'll have to pivot from protesting to helping voters navigate the changes to make sure their votes aren't thrown out. I think it's going to take
12: a huge push, collective push from a lot of our partners, from a lot of folks here in, in Cameron County to really break down what these bills mean, what they're going to do, how that affects our work as voter registrars.
16: Texas Republicans still need to merge their House and Senate bills in the coming days. The final bill would then go to the governor, who is expected to sign it.
15: A poll from April 2020 found that Americans would overwhelmingly be in favor of holding the next presidential election entirely by mail. But that still leaves a chunk who aren't sold on it. One reason is fraud. The possibility that your vote might be more likely to get lost, stolen, or coerced if you vote at home. So I asked an expert on voting by mail how serious and common a is. It's exceedingly rare. So I also asked someone who runs elections.
8: No widespread or systematic voter fraud.
15: I asked a political scientist who's an expert on election data.
14: It's highly unlikely anyone's going to steal your vote.
15: An election law expert.
14: The concerns
6: about voter fraud are way overhyped.
15: And an expert on voting rights. You are still more likely to be struck by lightning than to find mail ballot fraud. The reason vote-by-mail fraud is rare is that even though, in theory, it's possible, it's not very effective. It helps to think in terms of wholesale fraud versus retail fraud. The same week that Wisconsin held its election, the state of Georgia sent all its voters forms that would let them request a mail ballot. But Georgia's Speaker of the House complained. He said voting by mail benefits Democrats.
0: This will be extremely uh, devastating to to Republicans and conservatives uh, in Georgia.
15: But there's no evidence that voting by mail is better for either party. A study at Stanford found that it doesn't get either party a bigger share of either their turnout or the vote itself all it does is increase the number of people who vote
14: we haven't seen any um, any benefit to one party over another.
0: There's nothing political about voting, and, and more people voting is a good thing.
6: Providing that all-vote-by-mail experience didn't change those dynamics. People were still voting the way they wanted to vote.
5: I'm pretty sure I'm living proof that you can elect a Republican in a blue state, and you can do it in a vote-by-mail environment. Every state in the
15: U.S. already has some kind of vote-by-mail option. It's called an absentee ballot. But some states will only give you one if you have a good excuse, like if you're out of town or in the military. Other states offer a no-excuse absentee ballot where you don't need to give a reason, but you still have to request it. Voting by mail is something every state already allows. But very few states are actually prepared to do an entire election through the mail. That's what caused the problem in Wisconsin. In 2016, about 250,000 Wisconsin voters requested an absentee ballot. In 2020, about five times that number requested absentee ballots. Wisconsin hadn't prepared for that, so a lot of people never got their ballots and had to go vote in person instead. I was one of over 55,000 people who had requested an absentee ballot who had not yet received it. I am desperately hoping um, that we can make that um, an exclusive option if we're still dealing with unsafe situations um, in November.
6: It would not be that difficult to ramp that up in time for the election. I mean, you'd
13: need to start now. It's not trivial, but it's very doable.
15: In the five states that have all-male voting, there's still an option to vote in person, a backup, mostly for people who didn't get a ballot or weren't registered to vote in time.
6: This is the battle that we're always fighting, right? There are, as I count them, Four amendments to the Constitution trying to get over our original sin of having a democracy where only rich white people could vote, right? We have the 15th Amendment, the 19th Amendment, the 24th Amendment, which eliminated the poll tax, the 26th Amendment, which dropped the voting age to 18. I could throw in the 17th Amendment, which made a popular elections of the senators yep. possible. That's four to five bo- amendments trying to exp- expand the franchise. Who's been against them at every point? Conservatives. Whether those conservatives call themselves Democrats in the 1860s, whether they call themselves Republicans today, whether they call themselves Democrats from West Virginia today, conservatives are the ones who are against expanding the franchise. Why? Because when everybody votes, conservatives can't win. That's just, they know it, I know it, everybody knows it. When everybody votes and everybody's vote is counted, the current conservative party as it is currently constituted cannot win. So and so they're not playing chess, right? They're not trying to, like, arrange the white pieces so they can outflank the black pieces. They are trying to throw the black pieces off the board and say, checkmate.
4: You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham.
0: But we went around to places, states, and rural counties that a lot of people don't know, can't even find on a map, because that's how much we believe in, in building power. And one of our models is Black Voters Matter everywhere. So that's what we did.
1: Now, with COVID, uh, as we all saw, a lot of people were able to vote by mail and do things that were unheard of before mm-hmm. the pandemic. So what do you think is going to happen moving forward? Because we've been seeing all these voter suppression mm. laws that have been getting passed in certain states. So what can we do to make sure that we're still able to access uh, being able to vote easier. You know what? We got to fight. At the end of the day, mm-hmm. we have to really recognize what this is about. Part of what the work
2: that we're doing, we're telling people we're honest about voting. Listen, our name is Black Voters Matter, but we're the first to tell you we don't believe that voting is going to lead to black liberation by mm-hmm. itself. That's right. not what we believe. Right. But what we do believe that it is a tool and that when people are in struggle and they're seeking to get power, you have to use everything available. We ain't leaving nothing on the table. Mm. And so at the end of the day, part of us, even the work that we're doing around, you know, even around voting, The suppression is not just around that. It's really around getting people to say, go get your power. At the end of the day, we have to assert and stand in our agency. And so part of what we're doing is this is an organizing opportunity for us to literally get black people to think about. We have to think about our power. We have to think about our agency. We have to think about governance. If we're going to build something different, we got to think about governance. Because what I can tell you is, when people are not thinking about that, you'll create the same thing That's that right. was already created. Right. So we have to we have to use this as an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And so the work that we're doing around voter suppression is twofold. One, it is yes, we got to stop the bleeding now. We're actually out in these streets. That's why we are fighting for this federal legislation, mm-hmm. so that what we're seeing this voter suppression that is happening when people are hearing about the um, the John Lewis For the People Act and the John Mm -hmm. Lewis Voter Advancement Act, Mm -hmm. we need that to actually stop the pain that's happening now. But beyond that, we also need, you know, I always ask people this question, what would this nation look like without racism? Mm -hmm. Just sit in that for a
3: minute, Mm -hmm.
2: right? And the reason why it's important to ask this question, because if we ain't asking that question, what are we doing? Because we'll never create that if we mm. can't even envision that. Mm. There's nothing that has been brought into the physical world that folks didn't first envision. Mm. And so I'm saying that because part of the work that we're doing is not just responding to what it is now. It is helping people to radically reimagine every single system in this country. If that means shifting the whole way we see the criminal justice system, because we know what it's rooted in, mm-hmm. that means shifting education, if that means shifting the voting process. But part of being able to do that is people have to really understand what that process is, why it does not meet the needs we have, and what it is that we want to replace it with.
0: And, and, and if I could add on, you know, I agree with everything what Sasha said, you know, but in, in regards to that that fight against the voter suppression piece, we got to be able. We got to be willing to use the power that we have, right, and to use different tactics. Like we got to believe what Malcolm he says by any means necessary. So, so one of the things we did in Georgia was we started this whole corporate accountability campaign where we said, look, corporations. We we, did, we had research that said, oh, Delta is giving X amount to the very people that are pushing these bills, right? Um, 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 Coca Cola is giving. Okay. Uh, thousands of dollars to the very people that are pushing these bills. So we said we got to call them out, right. and we got to hold them accountable. Right? We gotta tell you, you, can't have it. you can't be uh, asking us to be your employees and be your, your consumers and living off of us and, and depending on us while you're funding our suppression. Mm-hmm. Right? And so we did a whole corporate accountability campaign to fight back against that Georgia bill, to fight back against the Florida bill, to fight back against the Texas bill. In Texas it works. Right. All of it worked, because at the end of the day, that's what movement is. Right? Mm-hmm. We started in Georgia, couldn't stop the bill in Georgia, but it created momentum that then let us stop the bill in, in, in Texas. What do you I mean, say to
1: people who say that you know, voting doesn't matter, or people who say, I don't like any of the candidates, so I'm not mm. voting?
0: You know, at the end, that's that's like, a. That's a <laughs> we
2: say you right. <laughs> I mean, the truth of the matter is, you have to understand this ain't about this ain't a popularity contest. This, we ain't ta- we ain't talking about no talent
3: show. That's right. We're talking right.
2: about at the end of the day, somebody, if anybody, has done any social justice work. I can tell you the difference when I go into a courtroom that if a DA matters absolutely, if one DA in, is in office opposed to another DA, that can make a difference between whether our people get time in jail or twenty years to life. Mm-hmm. Having a judge in jail. I mean, a judge in place that is least more accountable to community makes a difference for us. So we have to really see this as a harm reduction strategy. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, I don't know about anybody else, but anybody that's making a decision about me and my family, I need to be a part of that process. Mm-hmm. So this isn't about who you like or who you don't like. It's really around how am I going to reduce the harm happening to my community at the very least and how I'm going to hold folks accountable. If you come at us, we're coming, we coming for you. Right. Right? There have to be consequences when people are doing things that are harmful in our communities. So when those DAs or those judges use an opportunity to exploit us, we got to go and make sure we move them out to give a consequence. Mm-hmm. And the same thing is also, we have to put people in position. Corey Bush being in position, mm-hmm. this right. sister being in position, being voted by young folks, right. right, young black voters, as a result, the entire process around housing eviction, her actions matter. Right. So mm-hmm. for us to not acknowledge, right. right, you don't have an analysis of power mm-hmm. if you say it doesn't matter. Right. You know, it's the same thing around how many of us get a you don't like your boss you ain't gonna go get your check
3: mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> right if at the end of mm-hmm. the day it's really around how you're going to use the tools to actually advance your community and voting is one of those every single aspect of our lives is impacted by voting find me something that isn't right you right. can't even die and your people get the insurance money without having a death certificate somebody creates that policy mm-hmm. so as long as we're in this formation right where this public policy impacts every aspect of our lives If you are a person like me that believes in self-determination, I've got to be a part of the process, right? Because I'm not going to let you make a decision about me and mine, and I'm not a part of that process.
4: This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Former president and his supporters have decided the only way for them to win is to suppress your vote and subvert our election. It's undemocratic. And frankly, it's un-American.
0: decided to have a day where we were going to give out at polling places at, or at least a neighborhood them. close to <laughs> to polling places that we would give out um, bushels of collards and, and cans of black-eyed peas and we threw in some boxes of some cornbread to go with it and people could come out and they could get that and oh by the way you right over there by the early voting place how about you go across the street and go on and, and cast Mark, the vote right Mark. we did that in 30 counties no 50. was it 50? F- it was 50.
2: was it
3: 50 yes. counties? All right. (laughs) I'm going to say
0: 50. 50. We we, we did it in a bunch of counties throughout Georgia, (laughs) simultaneous, the same day, New Year's Eve, not at night, of course, but, you know, between 12 and 4, something like that. And folks came out, right? And they came out, and Mm -hmm. they got their stuff, and it helped them to get ready for, for New Year's Day, and it helped them to build power. And then they also get to do what? And this is part of the answer to your question, too. We tell them, look, all we ask you to do, send this message, send this flyer to five of your friends. Everybody we touch, we believe, is an organizer. Everybody's got a role to play, right? They don't have to be there on the front lines. They don't have to get locked up with us uh, when, we, when we get arrested. But they have something that could give. It might be the money, right? It might be that they're a graphic artist and that they could create, you know, some kind of images that we can then use in the outreach. Or it might just be that they can talk to five people that they know. Everybody we touch is an organizer, and that's part of what we what we try to, try to communicate. So, yeah, that Collar Green Caucus is, is an example of, you know, the different uh, things that we did and the different ways that that money gets used by these local groups. We we had partnerships with um, the divine nine organizations right mm. that had never been done before partnered with them we're giving them some grants they got the bodies they got the volunteers but yeah. they were like look y'all we, you know, sometimes we need money to travel someplace or to get some some stuff to, to give out or whatever and so we gave them some resources we're talking about NAACP p chapters we're talking about um, churches we're talking about neighborhood associations we talking about groups that ain 't even really grouped charlemagne and they, they ain't got no 501 c3 they ain't they, they, well, um, they get the work done. They, but they get the work done mm-hmm. they might be the mama on the corner that could get fifty people show up. We find a way to get them the resources to do what they do best. That's where the money that comes to us winds up going. Like Latasha said, close to half of that money just winds up going right out the door to the groups that we work with. Well, how can and and you even vendors. Y'all tell us what website is <laughs> that. Yeah, Listen, we're going to
2: tell you the website. <laughs> and I also want to say the economic piece. Y'all, mm, oh yeah, the, right, the black right, farmers right, in Georgia right. love us because we bought all the greens all
3: in
0: the state. All the collars. <laughs> so we,
13: we,
2: all the money. <laughs> we right. bought all the collars in the state <laughs> right. right from black farmers that we actually are vendors. In the midst
0: of COVID. Think about what they was going through. Right.
2: And between November to December, we fed our people. We're saying the Collie mm-hmm. Green Caucus, right. but we gave our groceries to over 20,000 people. We, not whether you vote or not. Like, literally, we think that's part of the problem. When folks just come around asking for the vote and don't care mm-hmm. about the well-being of our people, right. we're there. Even right now, we're doing warrant clinics. Right. Like, we're actually organizing. We're going to do warrant clinics in all of our states where we're actually helping to, to negotiate to get these uh, some folks from 3,000 to 5,000, just a simple traffic ticket. Mm-hmm. It's not 3,000 to 5,000. Our folks don't have that kind of money. So we actually are negotiating, working with, to make sure that we bring the courts to our communities and that we're actually clearing people fines out so they don't have to ride around um, being afraid or they can't get a job because they can't get an ID. We do that with your money. It's not just in terms of the electoral process. So you can go to our website, Mm -hmm. (laughs) blackvotersmatterfund.org. You can go to our social media, mm-hmm. uh, Black Voters MTR. You can get Cliff Notes on uh, Twitter and Miss mm-hmm. Latasha Brown on Twitter, all the social media. We're constantly putting up the stuff that we're doing because we're in these streets, y'all. We're in That's these streets.
0: Right. Including next Saturday.
4: Make Good Trouble Rally. Let's That's go. Right. Let's, right. Talk right. Let's talk Which, about it. Which, by the way,
1: it. is also Angela Yee Day in New York. But.
4: Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power. One broadcast at a time.
1: Who will
0: survive America? Few Americans. Very few Negroes and no crackers at all. Who will survive America? Few Americans.
3: Very
4: few Negroes. And no crackers at all. One day, when the glory comes,
3: here will be our we will be out Oh, one day When the war is won We will be sure We will be sure Oh, no. Glory
0: Glory oh. Glory Glory Hands to the heavens No man, no weapon Justice is in us Justice for all just ain't specific enough One son died, his spirit is revisiting us True and living, living in us Resistance is us That's why Rosa sat on the bus That's why we walked through Ferguson With our hands up When it goes down, we woman and man up They say, stay down, and we stand up Shots we on the ground The camera panned up King pointed to the mountaintop And we ran up One day When the glory comes